welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Lindsay, and this week I'm talking to author Alex Wheatle, an acclaimed writer who fearlessly tackles subjects of social injustice in his work. Having grown up in the UK care system in the 1960s, Alex was also first-hand witness to the violence of the Brixton riots in 1981, both of which have influenced his work. His debut novel, Brixton Rock, won praise from critics, while life on his fictionalised South Crongton estate has featured in a number of his books, including Crongton Nights, which was the winner of The Guardian's Children's Fiction Prize. In 2008, Alex was awarded an MBE for his services to literature. His latest novel, Kane Warriors, has been endorsed by Amnesty International. Alex, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Yes, I'm very happy to be here, and that is probably the best introduction I've ever had. So thank you very much. Oh, amazing. (laughs) Well, it's such a pleasure to have you here, and I've been really looking forward to our conversation. We're going to sort of jump straight into the books. Now, you're known as the Brixton Bard. And Brixton has been a big influence in your life. But before we get to Brixton, uh, we're going to go to your childhood and your first book. Can you tell us the book and your memories around reading this? I remember picking up Treasure Island, sometimes uh, comics and magazines. And occasionally, very occasionally, the odd book would appear on the floor of my dormitory room in the children's home. And Treasure Island was one of those books and I picked it up and it was the perfect escape for me because I was living quite a traumatic experience in a children's home. There was lots of um, physical abuse and other abuses and you could not escape from that. But this is the power of fiction. When I picked up Treasure Island, I would close my eyes and imagine that I'm I'm sailing the seven seas of the world and exploring new islands and um, meeting people like pirates and everybody else. And it just took me away and gave me a space and give me some kind of solace to my existence at a time. And so I always um, fondly remember that experience of um, just being transported away to somewhere different and somewhere overseas and somewhere exotic. And I just loved it. Loved that experience of uh, opening up the pages and transporting my mind to somewhere else. And can you remember how roughly how old you might have been when you read it? I must have been about seven, eight, seven or eight, I think. Yeah, it's 1970, I, I believe. So, yeah, seven, seven. I was born in 1963, so seven years of age. We still get a lot of customers, uh, especially around Christmas time, actually coming in for Treasure Island. It's It has had this sort of lasting effect. And quite often it is grandparents and they do sort of say, do you, do you think my grandson or my granddaughter, do you think they'll still like it? Is it too old for them? But we kind of always really encourage it. It does just seem to have this resounding, ongoing legacy. Yes. A good story is a good story. And it's perfectly told. It really is. And sometimes when I read a lot of fiction these days, especially especially literary fiction, 
the author might be very clever in their um, perfect prose and, and so forth, but have they told a great story? And more is the case that they haven't. But um, in children's fiction, especially something like um, Treasure Island, it is a perfect story. And I think it will last for another 100 years or even beyond uh, and it will entertain and it will capture the imagination of young people all over the world. And you also mentioned there, though, as well about reading comics. I think, yes. did, did you read The Beano? Oh, yes, I love The Beano. And that was another escape for me. And it made me laugh. It made me, in fact, it even made me want to produce my own comic, where um, I remember there was a, a comic strip in Shoot magazine, and there was a story, um, a cartoon story of Billy's Boots. And I, I wanted to create my own Alex's boots. So that's how much inspiration it had on me. In fact, if you um, look at uh, or read Welton Blake, my new book that's coming out in January, that really is uh, the influence of the comics that I used to read. You know, a bit of laughter, a bit of uh, pain, a bit of uh, wonder, a bit of excitement. And that's what I used to get from reading comics like The Beano, Wizarding Chips, the Dandy magazine. I remember reading that, Desperate Dan, characters like that. Yes, and they filled that space that I needed to occupy my mind instead of dwelling on my existence. So I'd always encourage librarians or wherever I go that um, make sure you stock comics because that can offer so much for young people in schools and in libraries. Yeah, I... I loved the Beano. I was really strict. I would not touch the dandy. I was like, no way. The um, the thing with the the Beano, I think one of the things that I liked is it made me feel really grown up as a child because I don't yeah. know if I, I would see like adults reading the newspaper. So then I would read the Beano feeling like I was kind of doing the same thing as they were. <laughs> yeah. For me, it was just pure escapism, adventure, and uh, something that I could just um, lose myself in for well, I guess the Beano would take something like 20, 25 minutes to read. And it used to give me a chuckle, a laugh. And it just made my day that bit easier, you know? So yeah. that was a great benefit of that. And some really brilliant characters as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pug and the Bash Street Kids and the teacher. And it gives me uh, nice memories that. That's great. So I'd love to hear a bit more about Brixton because you're known as the Brixton Bard and anyone that wants to find you on social media, they'll find you on Twitter as Brixton Bard. And it's yeah. obviously been a really big influence in your life. What is it that's made it so special for you? Well, for me, I had to um, wake up politically, I guess. You have to remember that uh, my children's home was in the Surrey suburbs. And so coming to Brixton, that around about 15 years of age, it was a totally fish out of water experience, if you like. And so the first thing that I sensed was the music, the food, the market, and seeing so many black people around me, you know, walking up and down and speaking in accents that I couldn't quite understand or decipher. And so the whole experience of that has stayed with me. And so um, because I didn't speak the lingo, I had to really pay attention to what was being said. And when you're an outsider, you desperately try to fit in. And I think that is true of anybody. doesn't matter if you want to live in Newcastle or Cape Town. You just want to fit in as a young person. You don't want to be the outsider for too long. And so for a long, for um, say a few months in my first um, time in Brixton, I had to observe, I had to imitate, I had to um, listen very carefully. I had to do all those things. And I think that is where I picked up 
um, this uh, sense of dialogue, if you like. And that's what really helped me in my future career being a writer because I had to pay attention to what was being said. I mean, even to go to the barbershop was an experience where you had all these uh, competing voices and you're sitting down in this chair getting your afro trimmed neatly, as they used to say. And the banter and the excitement and the uh, the whole kind of atmosphere would really enliven me and make me feel like, yes, at last I've found my tribe kind of thing. I, I found my identity. And so that was very important for me. And especially what was going on politically as well with um, the police oppressing so many black guys of my age. You know, I was 15, 16, 17 and so on. And so I saw that close up. At first, I could not quite believe it, but it really affected me that obviously I was arrested shortly after the Brixton riots and I served time. And so those um, life-changing moments when you're young, they don't leave you too easily. And that's why it was easy for me to write about later on because they stay in the mind because, you know, you're young, you're impressionable, you're vulnerable at the same time. And for me, I felt those experiences were very important and they're worth value. And so that's what I'm trying to capture, that uh, my life, my friend's life, they all had some value in them and they were no doubt deserved their place to be in fiction. I was going to say, do you feel a sense of responsibility as a writer to ensure that these communities are given space on a page? Yes, I do feel that. But for me, they're good stories anyway. I mean, why wouldn't I um, try to explore that in my in my work? What else am I going to write about? I don't live in Cambridge. You know, that's not my experience or uh, Middle England or my experience is my experience, my lived experience. And that's very important to me. And the people who I, I grew up with, that's very important to me. So um, when I'm when I became a storyteller, it was you know, it wasn't me thinking, oh, this is out of the box. This is unusual. No, for me, it was um, perfectly normal for me to want to tell those stories. Why shouldn't it be? So, um, in fact, I was quite annoyed when um, I finished my term in prison. Uh, you know, I did a few months and I would go to WH Smith's. I'd go to uh, local bookshops in town and I couldn't really find anything that was relative to me or something that spoke to me of my experience or my friend's experience. And that kind of annoyed me. So I keep I keep on having to uh, dip into the American bag. And, um, you know, I was um, reading writers like James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison, and um, the other Harlem Renaissance writers like Richard Wright. And I loved all that. But what I really wanted was to read something about my existence or my friend's existence living in Brixton, you know. And because some of the characters I met, when I reached Wicks and was so colourful, was so loud, was so vibrant, so full of energy. They just beg to be written about and put on the page. Yeah, absolutely. I Because we can't see each other while we're recording this, but I can hear the excitement in your voice when you talk about it as well. It just comes through the airwaves to me. Yeah, yeah, it certainly did. And it just, you know, I was in a sleepy, Shirley Oaks is, um, it's about what, eight, nine miles southeast of uh, Brixton. And it's the environment is so different. It's a very sleepy village. The high street had probably one uh, newsagents, one hairdressers, one pub, one fish and chip shop, and that was about it. And so coming to Brixton with all the sound and fury and all the banter, all the music, it was just a totally different experience for me. So, And as I said, you just don't forget that. It just... This stays with you. I mean, I can close my eyes and almost hear the music being played now. 
as I walked through the markets back when I was 16, 17. Oh, I love that. The parts of Brixton that I know would be the very obvious ones, not necessarily off the beaten track where you find all those lovely hidden gems. I sort mm. of, you know, know the main the main streets and a few hazy nights in Hootenannies, but uh, yeah. you know, I don't you know, necessarily know the ins and outs um, that you get to kind of bring to life for us through your stories. On the very first week that I spent in Brixton, um, I learned about a house party. And I never attended any of these house parties before. And if you watch the Steve McQueen Small Act series, you will see the episode Lovers Rock. And that was um, totally my experience of coming to this house party where all the furniture was moved out into the back garden. So there was more space to dance, more space for the sound system guys to put their speaker boxes in and the DJs to uh, practice their rhymes. And uh, in the kitchen, you had uh, women just uh, cooking some beautiful dishes. There was drinks there, Red Stripe and Can I and Thunderbird and Skull Lager and so on, and, and a touch of rum as well. And then it would usually start about half past 10 at night and go all the way through to around about 6 or 7 in the morning. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this is totally out of my, of my realm, you know. So it was just an incredible experience for me. It's something, again, that I just could never forget. So um, in East of Wake Lane, I think I start off with a scene in a house party. That's where the story actually starts, because those images, those sounds, the smells, they just never leave you. I love that. A lot of your writing has been focused on that sort of young adult and teenage readership. And I do want to talk to you a bit more about that later. But moving on to your next book, I believe the book that you've just read is also aimed at that teenage readership. Can you tell us about it? Um, yes. Um, this was sent to me just a few weeks ago. And it's called Windrush Child. And Benjamin documents what the experience can be like if you're just a child and you're part of this Windrush generation. And you're coming to London from Jamaica. You don't know anything about London. So the first thing he feels is, the character's name is Leonard. The first thing he feels is that he's desperately cold. He desperately wants to go back to um, Jamaica where it's nice and warm, where he had um, an idyllic life, if you like. And then he comes to the UK and he goes to school and he gets teased and he gets racially insulted. And so it really captures that experience of that generation of children who came from the Caribbean at that time in the um, late 1950s, uh, early 1960s. And I think it's very important that these kind of books are available for our young now because then they can build empathy for that generation and build empathy for uh, people who um, sometimes labelled as other and just, you know, engage in their experiences. So I think it's um, crucial well, for our young people in schools today to uh, read a narrative like this. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, much, much needed, especially after the um, all the scandal that the Windrush generation had to um, go through and how many of them had to find documents before they were sent home or sent back to the Caribbean because we didn't have the full document documents. Yeah, and I think it's so true what you say that, and I'm I'm more than willing to stick my hand up and say that until the last couple of years when that scandal was breaking, I didn't know very much at all about the Windrush generation. And like you say, these, these children now, through books like this, will have that opportunity to be learning about this part of, of history that just has gone very much under the radar. Yeah, it's even affected my family because um, I have cousins 
who came over to the UK when they were seven, eight, nine, ten, and they came in on their parents' passport. So they didn't need documentation back, back then. They could just come in on their parents' passport. And what happens after that passport expires? What do you do with old passports? Some, some people keep them, some people don't. So that led to all kinds of problems where they had to prove that they were British. And some of them have been here, well, they're older than me. I'm 57. My cousins are in their 60s now. And so it caused great distress that they had to prove that they were British. Yeah, it's been horrible reading about, like you say, people that have lived here for such a long time and the distress that they've gone through. Yeah, absolutely. So this is why this book is important. And I think we we have seen this year of statues being pulled down and tossed into uh, bays and harbours and so on. But to be honest, when I walk through London, I very rarely stop and appreciate a statue or what's written below it or whatever. And so I think we could have greater impact on the, uh, say, empathy levels, if you like, amongst our young people. If we try to um, say, look, this is our experience, and so they can pick up a book by Benjamin Zephaniah and read Windrush Child, I think that would change a lot more minds than, say, putting down statues. Mm. And Benjamin Zephaniah is, I mean, such a pivotal voice as well in the world of literature and poetry. I mean, he's how I learned about dialect. You know, you had a Benjamin Zephaniah poem that was put in front of you at school, and that's how you learn. You've been really kind about him here, but that praise also works both ways. Um, He has described you as a word warrior. (laughs) Wow, that was incredible. I mean, to read that was, it really, really made my year when that quote came through. And uh, I quickly uh, thanked him for that. And that means so much when your peers can uh, see your work and they um, offer you comments like that. It just made my heart sing. It it really did. Do you see yourself as a word warrior? Um, You know what, Lindsay? I don't really feel any different to how I was when I was 16, 17, when I used to go on the microphone for a sound system. And basically, uh, I used to express my poetry or my lyrics in a dance or a party jam or something like that. And my lyrics were basically about my uh, lived experience living in Brixton or, you know, the trauma that I had or the life that that came a struggle, if you like. You know, I was just trying to express and vent and process the trauma that I had experienced. And so today I'm not doing too much different. Yes, uh, I might not be writing about myself, but I'm definitely writing about people who have who have those experiences, like in Cane Warriors. And I I really engage with that um, sensation, that feed and that emotion. All because it's not about me. It doesn't make it less emotional. So um, I guess in that case, yeah, I can be described as a word warrior because I'm trying to animate those emotions that have been kind of um, sleeping for a long time. I'm trying to bring them to the surface again, introduce to an audience, you know what, this was my ancestors' lived experience and it should be appreciated and it should be part of the canon and it should be part of world history. Yeah, and we'll talk about it a little bit later on. You've been receiving some incredible reviews for that book as well. And so that passion that you've got coming through is a really authentic reading experience that people are really connecting with. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I remember reading about the, uh, the 300 Spartans. I remember reading various historical texts about various peoples of the world. And I just think the Caribbean doesn't have enough of that. 
about our experience, our existence, how we survived. And so, again, just like Benjamin Zephaniah's Windrush Child, I believe Cain Warriors deserves to be studied and read by our young people so they can understand what the slavery experience is actually like. Yeah, and I hope that it will be. Um, I, I really do. Now, I would love to hear about the book that for you had a, a huge impact or like life-changing moment. What have you chosen and was it a difficult decision or did it come to you quite quickly? It came quite quickly because um, my cellmate who I met in Wormwood Scrubs Prison in 1981, it was the, um, the summer. He saw me as quite vulnerable, fragile, bitter, angry. And we had a long conversation where I kind of revealed that I don't really feel that I have an identity or any history. The listener should remember that at this point in my life, I had no family. I had no supportive structure around me. I wasn't in care anymore. So even if they were listening, they kind of washed their hands of me anyway. And so I really had no place to go or no kind of solace or no kind of encouragement that I could find from anyone. But he understood that and he took pity on me and he wanted to um, be like a father figure to me. And one of the first things he did, he took me along to the prison library and he took out C.L.R. James, um, The Black Jacobins, which details the first successful slave rebellion in Caribbean history. That was 1791. And it was led by the great Toussaint Louverture. And as I read the text of this, I just started to wonder, why wasn't this taught to me in school? Maybe I might have paid attention more in my history classes. But perhaps I was bored with Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, and the Spanish Armada and everything else. But this really moved me. This really touched me because I felt that at last I was grasping some kind of my old ancestry, if you like, for the first time. And it really um, opened my eyes and made me politically aware and it made me consider that maybe my life wasn't for the scrap heap. Maybe there is something within me that I could find to um, make a contribution to society. I'm not just a throwaway. I'm not just another black guy who's going to end up in prison for the rest of his life. That indeed, there was heroes before me. And it was hard for them, like it was hard for me. And maybe, maybe I could honour them by doing something for myself and for um, the people around me. And so that's what really led me on the writing tip, if you like, to try to build something that I could leave as a legacy. Hopefully there'll be a young, a young boy, a young girl out there, it doesn't matter what colour, long after I've gone, and they will pick up an Alex Wheatle book like Cane Warriors, and maybe they might be inspired the same way like I was. I just wanted to ask about when you left prison. I mean, you were still a young man at this time. Yeah. It's still the early 1980s, isn't it? Did you do anything conscious or unconsciously to ensure that that moment of your life would not come to define you? Because having a criminal record can be such a stigmatizing label to place on someone. And I think society is often very quick to judge, yeah. has a bit of an issue with rehabilitation and, and that sort of thing. So when you were leaving prison, did you have to navigate your path in a particular way to say, this is not who I am? Absolutely. Yeah, I was filled with this pride that um, I'm capable of something. And that's what my cellmate, his name was Simeon. That's what he instilled in me that Alex, you are something. Alex, you're a member 
of um, the human race who can contribute just as much as anybody else. And so um, it's so easy sometimes when you live the life that I have that you think that you have nothing to give, nothing to produce, nothing to um, contribute. It's so easy to fall into that trap. But with alongside Simeon telling me positive things about myself and him saying that everybody has a talent and also coupled with reading The Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James, it made me believe that, yes, indeed, I did have something that I could work on. And, and so that stilled me in many ways because this is a time of mass unemployment, um, a Margaret Thatcher government that really didn't um, invest in youth opportunities as much as they should have, that could be argued. And so there's many interviews. I went to job interviews where um, I was turned down, could not get opportunities, but I still had that belief. I, I didn't necessarily believe I would be a writer back then, but I did have this strong belief that I could be something. I'm not sure what it was, but I knew there was some good within me. I knew I had some talent within me. And basically, I just nursed along my um, my lyrics, my songs, my um, my creative works, if you like. I just nursed that along to express myself because Simeon always told me, Alex, um, you need to process all that you have suffered over the years, your childhood. And so I found writing as a release valve for that without even realizing that I was honing my talents. I really didn't understand what I was doing at the time, but I think I had to go through that to get where I am today. Everybody has to start somewhere. And starting for me was just processing and believing and that um, what I had to say was important. That was the most, I think that was the biggest hurdle probably, that what I, what I was writing about, my experiences and my friends' experiences and me uh, chanting here and there about those experiences was just as valid as anybody else's. Have you been able to keep in contact with Simeon at all? Because he sounds like such a special person in your life. Yes, I kept in touch with him over the years. He passed away, what, about four years ago now. Uh, he went back to um, Jamaica to retire. He was a cabinet maker. He, he was very well-read. He was a Rastafarian. He loved his Bible, but he loved world history. That was his thing, world history. So he got me reading a lot of um, books about Egypt and Egyptology and and so forth. And so, um, you know, I forever appreciate him. He became like a father figure to me. And I think everybody needs that. It doesn't matter who you are. Everyone needs someone to believe in them. I, I was very fortunate that I found him because um, sometimes when you lived my kind of life, those kind of people are, are rare to meet. You don't sometimes take notice of them or sometimes you may walk past them. And so, you know, we had nowhere to go. We was in the same cell. So, so I, you know, I was very lucky to have that access to that brilliant mind he had. He sounds so wonderful. And I think it's true that you never know when you'll meet people or why or when they'll come into your life. But yeah, I'm sure he would be so proud of you as well. Yeah, absolutely. And he is. Um, I remember when I sent him uh, Bricks and Rock and East of Acre Lane, he would um, write back to me with 10 page critiques. <laughs> and so, um, you know, he's, he's always encouraging me to do better. And that's that was a nice lesson for me to learn that not to um, just uh, sit on my laurels and say to myself, yes, I'm, I'm a complete writer now. No, he would never accept that. He said, Alex, you could improve in this aspect or that aspect. And so I've always took that as parkour for every novel I write. How can I improve? What can I do to make my product that bit better? Well, 
Talking of your writing, I think it's high time that we talk about Cane Warriors, which is the book that we think everybody should read. Can you tell people a little bit about it? Cane Warriors came about after a conversation with my mother about two or three years ago. And um, I did not grow up with her. So I'm always fascinated about her own journey, her own childhood. And she grew up in a village called Richmond in Jamaica in the parish of St. Mary that is very close to the North Coast. Now, the North Coast was populated by rich Hollywood types. And uh, I think Noah Coward had a house where he called it the Firefly State. And um, little did she know that there was a massive slave revolt that um, occurred there in 1760. But she remembers as a little girl that um, the elders would sometimes whisper the name of Tacky. And so me being a storyteller, I was fascinated. So I, you know, Google is your friend. So I looked him up and I thought, wow, oh my gosh, this guy led the slave revolt. He overpowered two or three plantations. He marched to Fort Haldane, which is the site of Noah Coward's um, Firefly State. That was a British garrison. He overpowered that, killed everybody there. He um, took ammunition and guns. And then sometime later, he had this big confrontation with the British who had brought in um, reinforcements and horses and so on. And I thought, wow, I've, I've got to tell this story. But the more I thought about it, Lindsay, and the more I did my research, and when I discovered that um, I was doing research about what, what life was like on the plantations, when I understood that um, boys of 11, 12, or 13, 14 years of age, they were required to do the same back-breaking work as the men, the adult men. And I just stopped for a minute and thought to myself, oh my gosh, what could that experience be like? You know, having to, um, having to wake up and go to those cane fields under the lash and you know, 13, 14 hour days, what must that be like? And so that's when I changed my mind about telling the story of Taki. I wanted to tell the story of a 14 year old field slave who has to commit to the cause. I thought that would be much more fascinating, especially as um, I've done all this YA. And for me, um, yes, they do call it YA, but for me, anybody can read this up to 12 to 112. I'm nodding away there because this is a conversation that we have so regularly in the shop about young adult books where people go, oh, because they sort of might see an age range that says, you know, anything yeah. from sort of 13, 14 up to sort of 25. And they go, oh, well, well it's not for me then. Or they think in yeah. some way, perhaps writing's been a bit diluted or, and we go, no, 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 not at all. It really can be read across all age groups. Absolutely. I mean, we're living in a time now where, especially in the UK, we are producing such incredible YA and children's fiction. And it should be celebrated. There's so much of a range now that when I was young, you know, there wasn't much. I mean, yes, there was your Huckleberry Finns, there was your Treasure Islands, but now we have such a vast range of narratives from all over the world. It's, it, it's really great to be part of this children's uh, YA kind of movement, if you like, with so many different narratives all different kinds of perspectives. You know, we have Juno Dawson, Manry Blackman, Patrice Lawrence. I just read Daniel Juando's book the other day, which is magnificent. It's, so, it's such great stuff out there. It really is. 
You've received some really wonderful praise for Kane Warriors, but I just want to quote here Jeffrey Boachi, who said, Alex Wheatle is a master storyteller. He writes with urgency, passion, and the empathy we all need to wrestle with the realities of transatlantic slavery, bringing marginalized narratives straight out of the shadows right into the frame. Every kid in the country needs to read this book. Wow. Um, what a quote. Yes, what a quote. Next time I see Jeffrey, I'm going to have to <laughs> buy him dinner and a drink and maybe a desert after that, I think. So, yeah, it just um, makes me feel humble because, um, as I mentioned earlier, all I'm, all I'm trying to do is um, represent that emotion of what these characters had to go through all those years ago and try to present it like, hey, you know, this is what happened to our ancestors and it should be celebrated and it should be honoured. So hopefully I've done that. One thing I would like to ask you about, anybody really of the age range, um, adults can read this book, but it does, it's being marketed and it's falling into that young adult readership. Yeah. But obviously the scenes that you are dealing with and, it, and someone would, I think would have to be quite naive to think that a book about slavery is not going to contain violence. That would be quite naive on their part. Yeah. But for you writing, how did you strike that balancing act of going, okay, I am going to have a younger readership here, but this very much, this is the brutal reality of what these people were put through. And, and how did you approach writing those scenes? Well, sometimes it was difficult, Lindsay, because obviously some of those scenes could, if I wanted to write it in an adult way, could be very incredibly brutal. But I guess I had to temper some of that, but I I did have to give a sense of what it was like for Moa to actually witness these scenes or be part of, um, you know, he has to kill somebody. He has to kill somebody and there's no shine away from from that from that task that he had. And so I have to try and approach it. Okay, okay, I've got to make the reader know what Moa is going through, this, this sensation that's going through his mind, the emotions of it all. And so when it comes to the actual act, how do I address that? And um, I did debate with myself, how should I describe it? As a writer, you have a, a, a visual of how the scene is going to be played out. But that's how I write anyway. I kind of close my eyes and think, okay, I know what happens. How am I going to relate this? And I reckon 70, 80% was what was in my mind. Uh, maybe 20% I kind of held back when it came to the writing of it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Totally does. And also, because I've read the book and at never at any point did any of the violence in it seem at all gratuitous. Mm -hmm. It's extremely necessary yeah. for the, the story. As you say, you, you can't shy away from these things. But at no point does it ever fall into mm. the gratuitous category. That said, there are some really tender moments in the book. And there's a particular scene, I mean, I don't want to give spoilers away for people that haven't read it, but there's a scene between Moa and his friend Keverton. Now, Keverton's two yeah. years older, so they're 14 and 16. Again, even, even Keverton's still really young now for what they're going through. But they sit on a hillside together looking out over the sea and they just have this moment where they're just boys and they're imagining their life ahead of them and what they want and what their house will look like and having a wife. And I found that scene so touching and so tender in amongst all of this violence that was going on for them. 
Yes, I guess I wanted to show their humanity. They're not just these brave warriors. They've got their fears, but they also have their hopes. They also have their aspirations. They're also um, trying to imagine a life for themselves. You know, I'm just trying to show these guys, they're very young, and they have that banter, they have that bonding time. I thought, I felt that was very necessary for the story. And so they're full-rounded characters. We're not just um, these brave heroes who go off to war and um, they're so brave and courageous and they take on all comers. No, I'm sure it wasn't like that. I'm sure any any kind of heroic group, anybody who goes off to war, when the guns quieten, when it's nighttime, I'm sure anybody would get together and they would reflect and then they would maybe share of how they wanted wanted their lives to be. For me, that's natural because they're human beings after all, and they do want better. That's all it, and that's it really. They just want a betterness for themselves and the people they meet, their families. You know, Moa's got a bond with his um, mother. He's got a bond with his um, baby sister. The relationship with his father is quite difficult because his father didn't want him to um, go off to war. But it's still there. The affection's still there. He still feels for him. And so I wanted to show that. It's very important that I do show that. Because sometimes in a story like this, you can just kind of go macho heavy, if you like. But I needed to show the vulnerable side, the uh, the fragile side, the loving side as well. And I think that works. Uh, I mean, it's, it's hard now for me to imagine had you written this as tacky because it feels so right it being Moa uh, instead. Yes, I think it does. If I had written it from Taki's perspective, it would become this big macho thing of how brave he was, how courageous he was, and what a hero he was at the end. But really, what I wanted to capture, what it was like for a young individual boy going through this. And sometimes in world history, when we have these huge battles, World War II and so on, sometimes we lose that narrative of what it was like for young people. I mean, we get the diaries of Anne Frank, which is incredible and it's it's a, it's a very rare thing though that kind of narrative where we get this kind of story or perspective from a young person it's very rarely told from someone who's 12 13 14 15 16 and all these great big world events and so i think there'll be more of this than there should be more of this because sometimes adults we think oh okay it's only the adult narrative that's important well no i disagree i think the perspective from a child or a teenager is just as important Absolutely. And in in our conversations today, some of your profound memories are from those really formative years. And that's the same principle at play here from your characters. One thing I wanted to ask you about is you've written this in Jamaican dialect, and I actually wanted to know the writing process perspective, how that worked. I should clarify as well, it's not just the conversations, but through Moa's observations and what he's thinking in his head, all of that is fully within the dialect did you write down in plain english as it were a scene and then line by line turn that into dialect or are you able to just write straight into that dialect because i feel like that's got to be really detailed work to make the words sound true to speech and that jamaican accent that comes through it's a very good question, Lindsay, and um, I decided that I'm going to write it straight in a Jamaican dialect, if you like. I mean, it's not full Jamaican patois. I've reined it in a touch, but I just felt it was so important for me to create these characters because the way they speak will add authenticity to the character. And if I had them speaking in the Queen's English, I would have felt for myself that I hadn't represented them properly on the page. And so I decided from very early on that 
I'm going to write it in this style with their accented Jamaican tongues. I'm very fortunate. I mean, obviously, I'm the son of Jamaicans. So, and I've been to Jamaica many, many times to see family. And I have family members speaking exactly the way Moa does or Keraton does. And so I have that accessibility to that lovely flowing accent or dialogue, if you like. And so for me, it really adds to the character when I can do that. I use um, family, uh, friends and friends that I have in the Caribbean or Jamaica. So I use all of those kind of... um, influences if you like those lived experiences and put it on the page and for me it helps to add to those wonderful characters and i completely agree with what you said at the beginning of that that you had to write them in that accent that they couldn't have spoken the same as the the, the masters you needed that differentiation again yeah. split that different lived experience that was going on wouldn't be nowhere near as effective if everybody was talking and sounding the same throughout Absolutely. And um, you have to make that decision early on. Otherwise, it won't read correct, in, in my opinion. It just, no, it just wouldn't ring true for me. And it wouldn't ring true for, um, like, for instance, this book's going to be sold in Jamaica. And hopefully school children will read uh, this narrative. And if I had written it in a way that was not fully representative of the Jamaican characters, they would say to me, you know, we don't sound like that. We don't speak like that. So I had to honour that and appreciate that. Did you have to do a lot of reading out loud? Yes, I'm always doing that. So that really helps. I do that for any book that I write. Once I compose a sentence or a paragraph, in the next morning, I get up and I, I read that through aloud because I want to hear the mistakes. And so that's always a process that's um, helped my writing. So um, maybe that's why my dialogue so strong, because I treat it as seriously as any prose. And do you find dialogue comes easy? Because I know a lot of authors will sometimes say that dialogue is the weakness and they quite happily do the descriptive parts, but the conversation's a bit of a stumbling block for them. Do you find that it's actually been quite natural for you? Yes, it's my skill set. And it's because when I first came to Brixton, as I mentioned earlier, I had to pay attention because sometimes I could not even understand what people were saying. So I really had to um, sit in a corner and just take it all in. And because I was so attentive, I met this girl, I remember, way back this when I was about 16. And she went to a school, she went to a school in Streatham, which is um, north of the borough of Lambeth. She would tell me that they would have different slang about three miles away in Kennington, you know, where another girl might be going to school. And if, if the two ever met, then sometimes they would not understand what each other's slang were. And so that is how detailed the slang was, even in a, a small area like Brixton, let alone London. And so that fascinated me. Even at 16, it fascinated me. And so I've always paid attention to the rhythms and uh, flows of, of speech. You know, I'm just compelled by it. And I try to portray it accurately on the page whenever I can. I could just listen to you talk all day, Alex, to be honest. I'm really going off on with that, listening to you there. All your memories are so wonderful and vivid. I love it. Well, um, I'll give you an example. In my first weeks in Brixton, um, I had a friend of mine, a new friend of mine, who um, went to the cinema, say, a day previously. And the way he would describe that trip to the cinema on the bus, he would say it something like this. Got on the bus, man. I mean, the conductor, come, the conductor, he was tall, man. He's wearing his thick, thick, thick glasses, man. And he step up, step up in his big government boots. And he's, he had this big strap on with a ticket and he rolled out a ticket. Oh, my gosh, man. Oh, my gosh. He was tall. So you could see the kind of, 
my fascination listening to this as um as they used to call me a bumpkin boy, you know, from the outskirts of London somewhere. And I'm listening to this for the first time and I'm like, whoa, these guys were storytellers in themselves, the way they could relate an experience or something that they had um, enjoyed, say, a day or so before. And that's always stuck with me. I've always um, relished kind of banter, that kind of speech tones, that kind of dialect. I've always relished it. And it's not just London, it's Newcastle or the, the West Country or wherever I go. I'm always fascinated by speech patterns. That always influences me. And what is coming next for you? What's coming next? Well, you know about Welton Blake, but there will be another um, historical Caribbean story, this time written from the perspective of a young girl. So, um, yes, you can look forward to that. And if I can think rightly, I might be able to give you a title. But I I can tell you something to tease you. It will feature um, Captain Morgan himself. He's going to be a character in this sprawling story. In fact, I've got it down here. Kimosha of the Caribbean. That's fantastic. Oh, that sounds so good. So I think that would be probably 2022. Okay. And, And anything else coming from Crongton? Crompton, I'm working on one of those quick read titles. Okay. In fact, I just started that two weeks ago. And so um, I think that will be published in 2022 as well. And um, yes, apart from that, I'd really like to do another um, Welton Blake kind of comic book kind of style story. Um, I think that was where my output would be in the next few years because I just enjoy it so much. And sometimes we need a laugh, don't we? We need to enjoy. So in a way, I've come full circle where, you know, I was entertained as a young boy with comics. And I want to do the same again for an audience out there who need entertaining, who need to have a laugh, who need an escape. Yeah, we so we received a copy of The Humiliations of Welton Blake last week, which I've had a chance to read through. And uh, well, I, for one thing, I had to brush up on my Star Wars knowledge a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this book is uh, it's a children's book and it's published by Barrington Stoke. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily know about the amazing work that Barrington Stoke do. So they specialize in stories for children who might have dyslexia or are reluctant readers or just struggle with their reading. Yeah. And they are so good at bringing on board incredible writers such as yourself to kind of help build children's confidence. And The Humiliations of Welton Blake is a great example. I've got it in my hands now. So it is the interest age is 11 plus, but the reading age is eight plus. So yeah. you've got that difficult task of, you know, an 11 year old doesn't want to be reading the books from the eight year old section. That's not going to help their confidence and they, they don't want to be made to feel patronized. And what Barrington Stoke is so good at is having writers like you be able to give them something that is entirely up their street interest wise, but is going to help them where they might be lacking a slight bit of readability so has that been a fun project to work on oh absolutely i absolutely love working on this it's my observations of what life can be like for an 11 12 year old boy who has a crush on the um the best looking girl in your class so again this labeling thing that i really i really don't like where they kind of say okay this book is for eight plus or 11 plus or wherever it may be no, um, I'm sure even my mother would enjoy this and she's 89. Absolutely. Well, Alex, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Cane Warriors is out right now for people to buy and The Humiliations of Welton Blake will be available in January 2021. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. 
thank you for so much for having me, Lindsay. And hopefully we can do this again. I would love that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us. Thank you.